You know, we, uh, we do pray, even so come. Those, uh, you know, if we sing that enough times and we go through that chorus a few times, um, it's easy to not think about what we're saying. Um, the great hope of the believer is for Christ, would you please come and put an end to death and suffering? This has been a, a heavy week on this block. Um, Eden Prairie High School lost two people this week. Uh, if you're part of Eden, the Eden Prairie High School community, you may know that. If you're not part of it, you may not know that. Um, two unexpected deaths, one by a student, one by a teacher. Um, keep, this, keep this block, these students, these teachers, this community in your prayers before the Lord. There was a, a death from a house fire just north of here, probably not more than a mile, um, suffering people up in that little neighborhood. And what do we do? We gather and we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, the only one who can set things right. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the sermon this morning, okay? Um, I'm going to pray now instead of where I usually do after the reading of the scripture, okay? Father, the things we just named in this room, we lay before you as a, as a lament, as a, as a sorrow, also as a, an intercessory prayer to show mercy um, to this, this school, this learning community that we live right next to, that we are even part of, some of us. Uh, your mercy to be poured out that um, you would allow life to reign in hearts there and in hearts here in this building. That mercifully you would bring um, evil and death on this planet to an end by the coming of the Lord Jesus to set things right, to reign in peace and in life and in righteousness. So we pray, Father, we pour out our lament before you. We would even make life alterations and corrections in the way that we speak with people that we encounter in the community and on this block, that our eyes would be full of life and full of compassion that we would take an extra look and ask an extra question. That our concern with people would be Jesus Christ uh, to both picture him and proclaim him. So even as we bring these things to you, Father, we we also open up your word um, to receive life ourselves, to be reminded of what's true, what's important um, about this wonderful Savior. So... We pray that you would help us with that purpose this morning and give us a lot of joy in the process. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I do invite you to find Luke chapter 12, okay? Luke 12, now the plan, the plan for the rest of this year is to finish the gospel of Luke. So do some calculations. This is mid-April, right? Snow's coming down, I can see it. It is mid-April, 
The plan is to finish the Gospel of Luke by the end of this year. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to have to be a little bit selective, okay? Um, We're not going to be able to take every passage and finish Luke by the end of the year, and that's the commitment that I made when we started um, about a year, year and a half ago, whatever that was. So we're going to be a little bit selective, but here's how I'm going to be selective, okay? I'm going to tell you that I'm going to prioritize passages that are either a little bit difficult um, or uh, that we only find in the Gospel of Luke, okay? So if, if the past passage in particular is in Luke and in another gospel, we'll, we'll probably pass over that in order to give attention to the things that Luke only covers or things that are a little bit difficult, either difficult to interpret or difficult to apply. So we're not going to skip over the hard stuff, okay? And so the passage that's in front of us today is actually a little bit difficult and it's a little bit obscure. So we get both of those things. Um, the things that we're going to say that we're going to see Jesus say here, the words that are coming out of his mouth are not the quotes that we put on Christmas cards and on calendars and posters, like inspirational posters that we put on the wall. Okay, the things that he says here are hard, and we're going to dig in and try to understand what he means. This is verse forty-nine through uh, verse fifty-three. That's the particular passage, so just a few verses. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his role in coming to earth. He's talking about his emotions. The feelings inside of him attached to that role and that purpose. His purpose in coming and the, the feelings that go along with that purpose. And we may have many wrong notions about Jesus. And we'll talk about some of those today and trying to understand what's really true. We're going to let Jesus tell us what's really true about himself in his own words. Okay. Verse 49 through verse 53. Um, if you're able to stand this morning for the reading of the word, I want to invite you to do that in order to honor God and his word. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, what is Jesus saying? Let's divide it into two parts. He's saying something about his role, his purpose on earth, among people. And he's saying something about his emotions. 
So that's our outline. We're just going to cover two things. He's saying something about his role, and he's saying something about his emotions. So let's take his role first. What's, what's he saying here about his role in relation to the people of earth? We may find what he says uh, surprising. In fact, I think he expects us to find it surprising. He expects us to be surprised by what he says because of what we find in verse 51. In verse 51, he asks this question, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? Why would he ask that question unless he knows that that's the prevailing thought? That, that's the prevailing thought among his disciples. That's the prevailing thought amongst us. Of, of course Jesus came to give peace on earth. It's not only the prevailing thought among us as the people of God, that's the prevailing thought among everyone in the world. Jesus equals peace. Jesus came to bring peace, to show us how to live peacefully with each other. He was all about peace. Now, we believe those things for good reasons. Those thoughts aren't unfounded. Those thoughts about Jesus bringing peace are not wrong. They're true. The scriptures testify to that everywhere. Those are well-founded thoughts. The prophet Isaiah, famously, chapter 9 prophecy about the coming of Jesus. What title does he give him other than the Prince of Peace? We know him by that title. At his birth, Luke chapter 2, the angel announcement, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus taught the ethic of peace, Sermon on the Mount, non-retaliation. Here's how to live with your enemies. Turn the other cheek. You don't retaliate. He taught an ethic of peace. His first words to his disciples post-resurrection are, peace be with you. So look, all of this is true. The idea that Jesus brings peace is not unfounded. It's true. But let's be specific about how it's true. In what way is it true that Jesus brings peace? Well, first of all, Jesus is the source of peace between God and mankind. In, In that sense, it's true. He is the one who has made peace between God and mankind by the blood of his cross. That's Colossians 1. So someone says, Jesus means peace. First thing he says, yes, absolutely, peace between God and mankind. He's the one who may reconcile you to to God. He has made peace between God and man by the, the blood of his cross. That's the first way that is true. Second way that it's true is that Jesus really is the coming king, the the future, the future reigning king on earth. When he is reigning on earth, then shall there be a kingdom of peace and righteousness. That's out of Isaiah as well. Isaiah chapter 11, when Jesus returns in his body to the earth, he will reign and there will be peace, harmony, 
among all, not only between God and man, but also between man and fellow man. And not only that, between man and beast. And not only that, but between beast and fellow beast. Right? The, the infant will play over the whole of the cobra. That, that picture is from Isaiah 11. The baby child will play near the, the whole of the cobra and without fear of being injured. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. And there won't be any problem. There won't be any death. There'll be peace among all creation. So when we say Jesus is peace, yes, in those two senses, absolutely. And if you are walking with Jesus now in a relationship of trust, having received that reconciliation that he provides between God and man, you know the inner peace that comes from that relationship. That you have peace with God. But as for now, between man and fellow man, the horizontal relationships, between father and son, between mother and daughter, between mother and daughter-in-law and all other relationships between people, Jesus does not bring peace, but rather division. Jesus divides. His presence means conflict and relational hardship between people, even between people that are otherwise very close. That's the point that he's making here. Not peace, but division. Division among people. Well, what's so divisive about Jesus? I mean, every, everyone desires a, a world in which everyone is living in harmony with each other. Everyone desires that, that kingdom that's coming where all of creation is in harmony, that there's peace between people. Everyone is for that. So why can't the world unite around a teacher that teaches this ethic of peace that Jesus brought? Why can't the world unite around this ministry of Jesus with all of his obvious goodness? Well, the answer is because of what Jesus says about himself here in this passage. He didn't come to simply be our helper. He didn't come to simply be our model of a good life. He didn't come to simply show us how to live with others and with God. He he didn't come to just be our example. to show us how to live a good life. That notion is attractive to many Christians, and it's it's accepted and, and preached all over the place. That Jesus came to be our example, that he's the example par excellence of a life of love, And that that's his purpose. And if we will just follow him, then the world of peace that we all want will come to pass. 
Taking that position, Jesus as a helper, Jesus as a model, allows us to take a non-controversial Jesus to the world. A Christianity without the hard edges. A tamed down Jesus. It allows us to take a God with no wrath to the world. Makes Christianity easy to swallow, right? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Follow the way of Jesus. But think about what's missing. No admission of personal sin. No discussion of personal repentance. No need to leave any other allegiances or any other gods. No need to leave your own sins that you find desirable. Just treat others this way like Jesus. That, that notion, that message is, is out there everywhere. Well, this is why we're studying Jesus in his own words. We're letting him speak for himself, not speaking for him not defining him for ourselves. We're going to take that definition to the world. So letting him speak for himself, we notice that he says two things about his role on earth, about his purpose in coming. Here's the first one. This is from verse 49. First of all, he is the the one point of judgment. It's the first thing that he says about himself, that he is the one point of judgment. When he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, that is the fire of judgment. He's using an image for the concept of the judgment that he brings. He doesn't mean that he ignites an actual fire on earth. He speaks of his role as the point of judgment for all people. His presence in his very coming, his presence immediately means judgment because no one can remain undecided on the question of Jesus Christ. The Christian message is not difficult to to understand. It's very, very easy. We claim that every person, in the end, will not be judged on the merits of their life. Did you know that? That's the prevailing message, which, which almost everyone believes, that in the end, you will be judged on how good your life was. No, 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 no. There's one question in the end. What do you say about Jesus Christ? That's it. That's what you will be judged on. From the one of us that sins the least to the one that has sinned the most. Think about the person, whoever comes to mind as being the the worst sinner that you know in your life or from history. Now think about the greatest saint that you know. Those two people will be judged the same way. What do you say about Jesus Christ? 
That's what he means and that's what I mean when I say the one point of judgment. Your answer to that question is determinative of everything. What do you say about Jesus Christ? Do you say, my Lord and my God? Or in that moment, do you only get a few words out of your mouth, something about good teacher, something about holy man, but with no personal interest in him? This is one reason why the world will not unite around Jesus, because he didn't just come to teach us a better way, because he came to be the one point of judgment for every person. That's what he means when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. The judgment of God is based on this one thing alone, the person and the work of Jesus. That's the first thing he says about his role. He's the one point of judgment. Second thing he says, this is verse 50, he's not not only the one point of judgment, he's the one sin bearer. Okay, now we're, if, if that didn't offend you, if that didn't offend everybody, what I just said, now we're really running contrary to what, the world wants to hear. Now we're really beginning to see why Jesus is not a unifying presence right now. As we make claims that we have sins against God. And that Jesus bore those sins for us. In his body. And that he made atonement for those sins to God by his blood. When Jesus says, this is verse 50, when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, this is a figure for how he will himself undergo the waters of divine judgment. In his own body, on the cross, That's the baptism that he speaks of, that he will enter into suffering for sins on the cross. He himself will be placed under the waters, so to speak, of divine judgment. He will suffer for sins on the cross. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I have a baptism to undergo We Christians believe that that God has taken our sins and laid them to the account of his son, Jesus Christ, and that he did that at a specific moment in time on the cross for those six hours and exhausted his wrath against our sins in the body of his son in such a way that when Jesus died, God's wrath against our sins was fully satisfied. That Jesus experienced divine judgment in our place. That's what we mean when we say 
Jesus died for our sins. That's what we believe. Jesus called this atonement that he was headed toward the baptism. A baptism to be baptized with. It's how Jesus made peace between God and and man. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Colossians 1, of course. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the one sin bearer. There is no other. There is no other way to have your sins atoned for. You can't work them off or pay them off yourself. You must go to Jesus and trust his holy and all-sufficient blood to cover your sins. Every person must decide for themselves. There is no other way to have peace with God than to seek it in the blood of his son. Now, is that a message that you want to receive? Is that a message that you can accept? Hardly anything is more unpopular than that message. That sin really exists. And that there's only one way to have your sins forgiven. That Jesus of Nazareth must be received and trusted personally. This is, again, this is why we're letting Jesus speak for himself. I think his words bear out as absolutely true. If, if this really is his role to be the, the one point of judgment for humanity and to be the one sin bearer, we would expect division over those claims. We'd expect people saying, I don't believe that, I don't want that, I'm choosing a different way, making some kind of counterclaim about Jesus, saying, no, he, he is a fool, or he's an imposter, or he was out of his mind. But let me ask you this. Can you still simply call him good? That's what, that's what I really want to ask you if you haven't trusted him yet. After hearing what I just said, can you still call him good without calling him God? Can you still call him good? If he says, this is his role. Bringing all this division among people. Does that seem to you like something a good teacher would do? I'm just going to let you wrestle with that. And see if you can still call him good, having heard him in his own words, and not at the same time call him God. So there's something here about Jesus' role. He uses imagery, but he conveys his role as the one point of judgment and the one sin bearer for mankind. Now, right alongside of this, there's something else. And I love when a passage works out this way because the, the, the first part, one thing Jesus is saying is it's very theological, right? 
We've got a lot of hard thinking to do about this body of stuff that he unloads on us. But then there's this whole other side where right alongside all of this difficult, theological, painful things, he talks about how he feels about it. So there's this whole other side of us that gets brought in and engaged in this. Not just our mind, but now he's speaking also to our hearts, the hearts of his disciples when he talks about how he feels about his role. He gives us a window into his inner life. This is verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, right? And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He admits to a distressed soul. Why distressed? According to verse 50, it was a distress related to his baptism, related to his suffering for sins, bearing the divine judgment of God against sin. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So we see that he is in a state of distress. It's an extreme distress, right? Those are his words. How great is my distress? And that it's related to his role as a sin bearer. That approaching day when the cross awaits with its physical torture and the spiritual weight of sin. the certainty of and the contemplation of that event is the cause of a a present distress in his soul. You know, we, we often think about and talk about the enormous sin burden that Jesus bore for those six hours on the cross. much less often, and maybe never, do we talk about this soul burden that Jesus bore for some number of years prior to the cross event. Jesus talks about it here. He lets us know the condition of his soul. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus has a full human nature. He also has a full divine nature. Two natures in one person. That's Jesus Christ. And we see something here, the outworking of that full human nature. In that he could not contemplate the bearing of divine judgment without a constant tremor in his soul. without something in his soul that he names distress. 
Let's wrap this up. If you're a Christian, Jesus is a lot of things to us. He is, how many things do we have time to name? Teacher, Savior, Redeemer, Lord, King, Healer, Deliverer. And in addition to all these things, he is the one who walks alongside us in suffering. He's the one that we have fellowship with in suffering. He knows what it feels like to suffer. Not not only to suffer physically like Job and like some of you are suffering physically. We learn here that he knows what it feels like to live out daily life with a soul burden. To carry about in his chest the weight of distress. And to continue, to somehow continue to live with people and minister to people in a state of personal distress. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you have that that feeling right here, right now. And this is something we hardly ever talk about. You know, there's a, there's a kind of suffering among people that's very obvious. You know, we see someone wearing a cast, or we see someone in a wheelchair or on crutches. We see someone in a hospital bed. We see someone with some kind of obvious physical disability, and we, we know that some measure of suffering has taken place. But there's this whole other kind of suffering that happens on the inside. Not noticeable. takes place within the spirit where like physically we're okay like we're expected to be normal and and help people and and carry on no no one may know about it unless we admit it unless we open up about it jesus tells us something in luke 12 at the end of luke 12 he tells us something we wouldn't have otherwise known about him and something that we probably would never have guessed Would you ever have expected that Jesus Christ would live in a state of inner distress? I don't think I would have. I think I would have thought his divine nature would have totally overwhelmed that and made that not even a possibility for him. He tells us what's true about himself on the inside, that while trusting God's sovereignty completely and with complete confidence in the goodness of God's character, he still lived in a state of personal distress because of his role as the one who would bear divine judgment against sin. That was the cause of the distress. It's not that he didn't trust God. It's that he was going to bear something from God on our behalf. As Jesus in his own words. Christian, Jesus Christ is revealed here not only as the one point of judgment and the one sin bearer, he's also revealed as the one who knows. He knows what you feel like on the inside.
He knows what it feels like to bear a stewardship of spiritual suffering and get up every day and minister to other people. He knows. Sometimes you may think that nobody knows, nobody understands what you're experiencing on the inside. And I say to you that Jesus Christ is yours, Christian. More importantly, you are his. He is with you. He knows you. He cares. He is strong. It's okay to be weak. And bring your soul burden to him and take shelter in him. You can speak to him things that you don't feel comfortable speaking to other people right now. He knows how you feel before you tell him. And not only that, he knows how you feel, period. He will be your rock in the day of trouble. You will find shelter under his wings. The great firecaster and the great sin bearer is also the good shepherd of his people. He's both lion and lamb and shepherd. There's no one like him. No one gets to define him. He defines himself, and he has defined himself. He is Jesus Christ. Let all the earth worship him. Every knee will bow down to him, and today, let his people who are called by his name return to him in humility and repentance and love. Lord, we love you. We love this wonderful Jesus. How good of you to give us someone who came not just as judge, but how could it be that this same one is also the good and tender shepherd? And not only shepherd, but the lamb who died in our place, who shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. It's amazing to look into his life. Thank you that he was so candid about his life. Amen.